From the pages of The Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you The Blizzard Podcast, a new weekly look back through The Blizzard archives, bringing you a selection of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 2, we look back to Jonathan Wilson's editorial from issue 3, published in December 2011, talking about what fandom means to him, the death of his father, and how he grew up to be a Sunderland fan. I spoke to Jonathan in his hotel the morning after our Q&A event at the National Football Museum in Manchester, apologies by the way for the noise of breakfasting businessmen and tourists in the background, and began by asking him how the piece came about and whether he expected the level of feedback he received. Not really, I mean it's it's one of those rare pieces that um, I was on a train coming north and uh, it was actually a piece I wrote initially for the Polish website and I knew I'd do something for that website, what we're going to write about. And I think it was probably about a year after my dad had died when, when I wrote it. Um, and uh, it's one of those pieces that sort of comes out fully formed, hardly any, any editing afterwards. Um, and it's, it wasn't planned in any sense. Uh, it just, bang, there it is on the page. Um, but I think it is something that a lot of people can relate to. That a lot of people, uh, the, the closest bond they have with their father is, is through football. So I, I can see why it had a universal appeal. And given that it was something of a surprise, the, the, the instant level of feedback, have you got any better at perhaps judging some of the other pieces <laughs> when, when looking at an issue and editing it and putting it together, are you able to, to predict which piece or pieces are the ones that people are going to talk about? Because every issue has them. Yeah, no. no. Um, yeah, it's just uh, some pieces for some reason catch some people, some pieces don't. Uh, you have pieces that you think, you know, it's a brilliant piece of journalism that's it's really well written, that some of you know, the research is incredible, it's just stuff that people didn't know, and it thinks without trace. And you have other pieces you think, oh, it's a bit, it's a little bit slight, it's a little bit surface, or, or was that a bit too obscure? Um, even, <laughs> even for our audience, is that a bit obscure? And, and for whatever reason, uh, it, it strikes a chord. And I think one of the problems, or one of the difficulties with, with the quarterly as well, is the thing is often written several months before the issue comes out. So you're never quite sure what's going to be zeitgeisty when the magazine's there. Uh, and something that um, might seem like a nice general piece when it's written could suddenly become incredibly topical because of something that's happened a couple of days earlier. And that's, you know, that's just luck. There's nothing you can do about that. And with that, we bring you Jonathan Wilson's editorial from issue three, Tales of My Father. Last year, after my dad had died, I stayed holding his hand for about a quarter of an hour and then left the nurses to it. In the hospital waiting room, I made three calls. The first was to Sunderland Civic Centre to register the death. The second was to the undertakers. And the third was to the Independent to tell them that I was, after all, free to cover Sunderland versus Burnley the next day. I know a lot of people found that odd. To be honest, looking back, it seems odd to me. At the time, though, it seemed perfectly natural. Part of it, of course, was that I needed something else to do. That I couldn't bear to just sit at home with my mam, wallowing in that blend of grief and relief that comes after the death of a loved one who's been tormented by illness. Part of it was about honouring my dad's militant unemotionalism, his insistence on getting on with things no matter what. And part of it was because football and my dad were so closely related. That evening, discussing funeral arrangements with The Undertaker, I mentioned that the first game Sunderland had played after the death of the great inside forward Ray Carter had also been against Burnley. I realised that my mam and The Undertaker were looking at me strangely, at which it dawned on me that what an absurd thing it was to know. I have no idea how I knew it, I certainly don't have a checklist of first games played after famous players' deaths, but I've looked it up and I was right. It was the kind of detail in which my dad would have delighted. 
He was not in any sense a talkative man, but on long drives he would regularly, after minutes of silence, ask, Do you know what happened on this weekend twenty years ago? And, when my mum and I admitted we didn't, he'd reveal that it was the anniversary of a Brian Clough goal against Walsall, or of Kevin Arnott's debut, or of Jim Montgomery's save at Huddersfield, which, he always maintained, was better than the more famous one in the 1973 FA Cup final. After Carter's death, Sunderland and Burnley had played out a scruffy one-all draw. They had the decency, at least, to mark my dad's passing with a comfortable 2-1 win that mathematically confirmed they would not be relegated. Nothing flash or extravagant, but proficient and economical, just as my dad would have liked it. My dad grew up about 200 yards from Roker Park, Sunderland's old ground, and his mother lived in the same house on Appley Terrace until a few weeks before her death in December 1995. When I was a kid, we often used to go there for tea on a Saturday. When I was six, my dad started to take me to the ground for the last 15 to 20 minutes of games, sneaking in when they opened the gates to let people out. The first thing I saw was Steve Williams side-footing an equaliser for Southampton. I'd been to about a dozen games before, a year later, I saw Sunderland score for the first time, Gary Rowell heading in at the back post against Leicester. Looking back, it occurs to me that we talked about football remarkably little, but then we didn't really need to. We saw the game the same way, knew what each other was thinking. We both disdained the flashy, both admired calmness and precision, and respected deep-lying central midfielders who distributed the ball without fuss. It was only at his funeral that I found out he'd played right back at school. Needless to say, that was the position I played for my college side. When we watched football on television together, we communicated in a series of tuts and grunts. After Sunderland had lost on penalties to Charlton in the 1998 playoff final following a 4-4 draw, we looked at each other and turned for the exit simultaneously, ignoring Sunderland's lap of honour. We collected the father of a friend to whom we'd given a lift and drove back to Oxford. Only when we met my mum did we realise that neither of us had spoken for over two hours. If, by any chance, Mr Wilkinson, you're reading this, I apologise for our grumpiness. My gran was cremated on January the 6th, the day Sunderland played away at Manchester United in the third round of the FA Cup. In the afternoon following the funeral, my dad drove me back to university. As we passed the end of Appley Terrace, Nicky Butt gave United the lead. There was, I think, almost a sense of relief. Neither of us would have said it, but I suspect we had both dreamed of some kind of send-off. This at least punctured those hopes, early, and let them gently deflate. But then, in quick succession, Steve Agnew and Craig Russell scored. There may have been a snort at the ridiculousness of it all, but otherwise we were silent, recognising what this could mean. But there are, of course, no fates. There is no guiding force. Football does not hand out sentimental favours. Eric Cantona equalised with a late header, and United won the replay. A few weeks before my dad died, I signed a deal to write a biography of Brian Clough. It's called Nobody Ever Says Thank You and came out in November. His memory was gone, ravaged by Alzheimer's, but when I told him, I saw a flicker in his eyes. Do you remember Clough? I asked. Talking, to be honest, for the sake of talking. He couldn't have told me that by then, what day it was or what he'd had for lunch. Of course I do, he snapped, and went to describe a hat-trick Clough had scored against Grimsby. Although I continued to visit every day, that was probably the last proper conversation we had. Why do I bring this up? Well, it comes from trying to explain what being a fan means, to me. I realise this is personal, and I don't want to suggest that there's a right way to be a fan, but supporting Sunderland was never a choice. It just was. I've spent a lot of time in Argentina, and people, naturally, have asked if I have an Argentinian team. My then-girlfriend and her family are Boca Juniors fans, and so I tried to support them, but the truth was that I didn't care. I didn't feel sick with nerves whenever they took the lead, and I certainly didn't feel tears pricking at my eyes when I recalled their greatest triumphs. I don't really like being so emotional about Sunderland, but I am. And of course it has nothing to do with whichever bunch of players happens to be wearing the candy stripes this season. Nothing to do with the manager, the style of play or success. It's to do with home, and family, 
and a sense of the club as representative of a strand of belonging stretching back generations. My dad's last game was the 4-0 defeat to Manchester United on Boxing Day 2007, but in a sense he has been with me at every game I've been at since. What I hadn't realised till last year is that his father, who died before I was born, had been coming with us for years as well. As those of you who follow us on Twitter will know, The Blizzard is now an award-winning magazine, having lifted the portfolio Sunderland Echo Creative Industries title in October. That, of course, is tribute to everybody who's contributed to the magazine, but it was particularly pleasing to win a business award rather than an award specifically for the writing. Those of us who write for the magazine have our names in it, and most of us, I suspect, have at least had the odd comment on our articles. This, though, was tribute to the hard work and initiative of those behind the scenes in the office, Gareth, Nina, Michael and Dave, without whom the blizzard simply wouldn't exist. In the alcoholic fug of victory, somebody asked, having won it, what we'd do next. Flippantly, echoing Clough's line, I said we'd come back next year and win it better. At once, the image came to me of Clough sitting at home the night Nottingham Forest won their second League Cup, watching television with a trophy perched on top of the set. In that, as in so much else, he was a contradictory figure, eschewing the usual celebrations while insisting it was important to savour the moments of recognition or success that life affords. I made a point, then, of standing a little apart for a few minutes, looking across the dining room at the Stadium of Light where the award was presented, trying to soak in the detail. What struck me, then, was how far from inevitable the sequence of events that had led the blizzard to that point was, how rooted it was in a series of football-related coincidences. If my dad hadn't taken me to Sunderland Games as a kid, I probably wouldn't have become a fan. If I hadn't been a fan, I probably wouldn't have become mates with Peter, the co-founder of the magazine. We lost touch to an extent after university, and if we hadn't bumped into each other at an away defeat at Brighton in 2005, I probably wouldn't have started going to games with him when I was back in the North East, and I wouldn't even have been in Fitzies for the pre-match pints during which the blizzard was conceived if I hadn't been at home because my dad was seriously ill. In Richard Attenborough's 1993 film Shadowlands, the academic C.S. Lewis, the creator of the Narnia books, is troubled by the question of why literature matters. In the end, after the death of his wife, the US academic Joy Gresham, he concludes that we read to know we are not alone. Literature is the currency by and in which his relationships are conducted. All culture, it seems to me, whether overtly or obliquely, fulfills a similar role, and nothing more than football, whose function as a cultural mode the blizzard was at least partly established to celebrate. Fandom is about belonging. The introduction to this editor's note was initially written for a Polish website. It couldn't be less mainstream, and yet I've had more feedback for that than for any other single piece I've written, which seemed to prove my point. Football provides us with a sense of belonging, whether that is related specifically to one club or, as in the case of the Blizzard, to a much more disparate community. The real answer to the question of what we do next is try to keep growing that community, to draw in as many people with a shared interest in football as possible. An award won't make us sustainable, people will. That was Jonathan Wilson's editorial from Issue 3, published in December 2011. Also in Issue 3, you'll find Tim Vickery interviewing Mario Zagallo and Tostal, Philippe Auclair exploring the links between football and music, Barney Roney on how modern football was shaped in an internment camp in Berlin, and our Greatest Games feature looks back at Denmark 4, USSR 2, in the World Cup qualifier in June 1985. Issue 3, like all issues of The Blizzard, is available on a pay-what-you-like basis at theblizzard.co.uk, meaning it can be yours for as little as one penny in a range of digital formats, or from £6 plus postage for hard copy formats. You'll also find us on the Kindle and Google Play stores. Given that this podcast is being released on the day that Issue 18 has been made available to subscribers, it would have been remiss in our conversation with Jonathan not to ask him what he's looking forward to most in the upcoming issue. 
Well, I mean, in terms of something that's just a great piece of journalism, um, the piece we've got uh, about a gangland killing of a, of a footballer in Sweden, I think is, I mean, it's an incredibly well-written piece, incredibly well-researched piece, it's an incredibly interesting story about immigration into Sweden and the issues that's caused and, and um, some of the difficulties that's caused. But I think it's an, an incredibly sort of even-handed piece. You see the, the point of view of the... Uh, other people in the gangs, the, the family of the, the murdered player, friends of the murdered player, uh, of, of even the police, you kind of get to see their sort of um, their frustration of what, what's going on. So I think as a piece of journalism, that's that's a superb piece. Um, whether it's something that will catch public mood, I, I don't know. Then we've got a section on Liverpool, which looks back, I mean, partly on Stephen Gerrard, but a couple of pieces on the late 80s, on, on um, maybe two of the, the less celebrated uh, greats of Liverpool, uh, Steve Nicholl and Ronnie Rosenthal. Uh, we've got a very, very long uh, Greatest Game piece by, by Rob Smythe, which is, it's the essence of Smythe, um, on, on the game where Cantona made his return after the um, after the ban for uh, kicking Matthew Simmons. Um, and then, yeah, the, the usual mix, we've got Pop America stuff. We've got a really nice piece uh, about the, the coup, uh, Finitex coup, and how that affected football in, in Chile at the time. Obviously, that was the stadium. The, the stadium that was used for the final Copa America was, was a, um, a, a detention centre during the coup. Um, so, so that has a resonance. So we got a piece on the, on the Women's World Cup as well. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you need to get in touch with us to give us some suggestions, comments or feedback, you can email podcast at theblizzard.co.uk or find us on Twitter at blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D.